Anybody out there? Can you hear the sounds? Is there anybody listening? Hey, what's up? Welcome to Simber Dialogues. This is your host, Sukanya. And your other host, Daryl. How are you doing, Daryl? I feel like I'm getting a little bit of, uh, what do you call that, in like cold countries where they're stuck in their homes for months on end, like up in Alaska. Hibernation? Of, maybe. Well, that's what snakes and bears do. Snakes and bears. Snakes and bears, twigs and berries. So what's new on your plate today? <laughs> well, I am in self-isolation mode. Um, I'm working from home and, yeah, taking it one day at a time. The struggle is real to find toilet paper. <laughs> Why are so many people buying up toilet paper? Because people are stupid. <laughs> no, like seriously. So the other day uh, when... My work was still on. Uh, I think last week I had to go collect some groceries. And I'm sorry, not groceries. Uh, you, well, supplies, supplies. That's the correct word. Supplies for uh, my studio. And I had to buy some hand sanitizers and hand soap and toilet paper. And I went to CVS and a couple other places. And guess what? The aisles were empty. There was absolutely nothing. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so I, I think I was telling you about a story I just read. Speaking of just a complete lunacy with the people buying up toilet paper, there was a truck that, um, he must have been a semi-driver, mm-hmm. whatever, and he stole a trailer that had 18,000 pounds of toilet paper. 18,000 pounds. 18,000 pounds of toilet paper. That is insanity. Now, if we're considering the pandemic markup of, what, 10 10 times toilet paper rates, I'm hearing people selling 12 packs for like $70 online. How much do you think that would be worth? 12 packs. Oh, that's a lot of math. 18,000 pounds, I'm talking. Yeah, that's crazy. I don't know, like probably in... Some hundred thousand dollars or more. Hundred thousand dollars worth of toilet paper. Or more. I mean, I might be wrong. But the guy got caught, so I'm wondering how much the fine was. I mean, not as much as he would make a profit out of selling those toilet paper. (laughs) This just feels like a Twilight Zone episode. Of like uh, what people thought the apocalypse would look like. And but it's not. Instead, it's just people stealing toilet paper exactly. or buying up all the fucking toilet paper. I mean, okay, for me, Apocalypse was like, you know, uh, Terminator, right? It's going to be machines everywhere. Uh, there's going to be chaos. There's going to be a lot of firearms and uh, zombies probably or, I don't know, AI machines trying to kill humans. But... Here we are. Just people can't wipe their own ass. <laughs> Here we are. Hand sanitizer, toilet paper, hand soap. The crisis that we are facing right now is that. Now what the real crisis is going to be is if people think that hand sanitizer is an adequate replacement to hand soap after wiping said ass. 
if they're just getting the hand, like they have a little hand sanitizer dispenser on the toilet and they just give their hand a couple squirts after they're done and think that's, uh, that's enough. Yeah, yeah. But you know, like in other countries, people actually don't use toilet paper and there is no crisis uh, for toilet paper out there. Uh, they use the good old left hand and water. Sounds like it could be a song. <laughs> left hand? Water, water, bunghole. <laughs> I don't know. This is disappointing because I remember, I mean, even up through The Walking Dead in the first several years of The Walking Dead, it seemed like every apocalypse story was hinging on zombies and the dead coming back to life and you could kind of go out guns blazing. And now it's just this. Yeah, it's Netflix and chill. That's how the world's going to go down. You're going to die watching Netflix. Hmm. I wonder if Tinder stocks have fallen. I'm, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. I mean, how are you going to go have a one-night stand when you're stuck at home? Netflix and chill with your cats. <laughs> cats are probably going to get pretty upset because they're used to part-time attention from humans and then humans go away but if you never go away the cats are naturally introverted creatures mm -hmm. and if we don't give them their space what's going to happen there dogs are going to love this shit they're not going anywhere they're like mm -hmm. my owner's never going to leave me <laughs> yep cats are probably you know secretly planning on killing you while you're sleeping one night you see them you know staring at you Sitting on top of your chest, <clears throat> planning your murder. That is true. They seem to be conspiring a lot more now that they're not. Uh, their excitement seeing us is kind of dwindling as the days go on. Mm -hmm. It's not, uh, what should I say? They seem conniving. Yep. Very conniving. Mm -hmm. I don't know, but back to the apocalypse. As a child, I would imagine myself in the backyard grabbing sticks and fake swords, acting like I'm beheading a bunch of undead creatures. And yet we're reduced to the system where now it's just people struggling for toilet paper. And I forgot what the other 50% of that pie chart was. Before it was like guns and zombies. Now it's toilet paper and uh, hand sanitizer. That would no, be the other. Yeah, like one of... My favorite childhood movies, and I know you're going to cringe at this, but one of my favorite childhood movies was Independence Day and Deep Impact. So I, I was a kid who thrived on the idea of the world ending and me being the only person, the superhero who survives. That was like a, like a childhood fantasy for me. But right now, when we're actually facing... Aliens destroying the planet was a childhood fantasy? It, it, it was, yes. And that's that me, me being like... <laughs> me being like the lone survivor, you know, somehow overcoming that and, you know, starting a new world by myself. That was such a huge fantasy for me. Did you, like, picture yourself as Will Smith? Uh, he was in, like, every one of those movies back yeah, in the 90s. Yeah, he was badass. I, I absolutely, absolutely liked it. And you know what? In Deep Impact, actually, I was... I was a huge fan of Elijah Wood. That was my dream, dream hero. I wanted to be him. You wanted to be Frodo? 
Yeah, well, Frodo would be good, too. Yeah. Frodo. <laughs> All right, where were we? Um, Apocalypse, talk. toilet paper, no people wiping butts. Uh, bidets. Talked about bidets. Bidets for days. Well, I, I think Americans should should think about adopting that concept you know water is i feel water is way more efficient in cleaning your butthole than toilet paper would ever be i mean why would you take why would you kill a tree turn it into paper wipe your ass and then flush it down the toilet you know you're you're killing you're killing the environment just to wipe your ass all I have to say is the toilet paper lobby in Washington, D.C. must be very strong. I get, well, yeah, the paper industry, I would say. They're down there convincing all the senators and congressmen that toilet paper is an absolute essential, essential part of American life. Well, you know, I, I get it. Like, you know, in colder countries, you really don't want to use water, especially during the winter months. It's freezing, you know, back in the days when the first or whatever immigrants came here uh they really didn't want to use the cold water and that's the be next best thing they could grab onto were like some paper yeah. yeah and that's what they use they're like oh well that kind of scratches my butt as well and kind of cleans it somewhat did they like get tired of accidentally using poison ivy was that is that why they started developing actual paper that they could use or maybe like most of them were Puritans and they really didn't care for books apart from the book. So maybe they just like ripped off papers from other books and cleaned their butts with it. Hmm. <laughs> now what's interesting is right now we're talking about toilet paper and wiping buttholes and people who happen to stumble upon our podcast, Simber Dialogues. Oh, that sounds how highbrow. That sounds very intellectual-like. They spent the first five minutes talking about ass-wiping. Well, it's very crucial at this moment. You see the world is going down, and the only concern we have is not having enough toilet paper. So that is a very important part to discuss, I feel. Do Italians use bidets? No, I don't think so. I think it's a very French thing. I mean, so does it. Do Italians use toilet paper? I think so. We should verify this. Well, let's we, do a fact check. We, we need a Jamie here. Do Italians use toilet paper? I don't know. While I'm looking this up, you talk. <laughs> so what do, what do Indians use? Tell people that aren't familiar with Indian life. Well, the Indians use? use their good old left hand and good old mug of water that's it mug of water yep details so you have a plastic mug you have a bucket full of water while you're squatting down and minding your own business after you're done with your business you scoop up water from that bucket with that mug and then you splatter splatter it on that said area and then wipe it down with your left hand. So you use your left hand to do it. And after you're done, you wash your hands uh, with soap, clean it up, and go your merry way. You And one thing about Indians is that you do eat with your hands, but you never use your left hand for eating. 
after you only use your right hand. Left hand is strictly to do your business. Very informational. I hope somebody out there learned something about culture today. Now, apparently, Italians are kind of uh, ambidextrous in terms of what they use to wipe with. They do use toilet paper, but they're also mostly bidets. Oh, okay. So it's not solely toilet paper. So I don't, I don't think that they're having the same panic that Americans are over the empty toilet paper sections. Do you think the whole thing of toilet paper was invented mostly by the British? Don't they have some sort of a bidet or some? Maybe it would be because they are very prudish. I don't think they have a bidet. I think most of them use toilet paper. Hmm. But what did they do before paper was invented? Bark. Oh. Oh. Well. I don't want to scratch your butt with it, but I don't know how. Better leaves or. Ew. Things they found out in nature. I guess maybe some of them probably just went to the river and did a little splasheroo. See? Come back to the good old Indian way of doing shit. Literally. Started from the bottom. We're still there. <laughs> I don't know. All right, so probably enough on that topic because I don't think we're, we're building an audience at this rate. Listen, listen. Poop is the most discussed topic in the whole wide world. Here's some wisdom for you. What if I told you that every human on earth, every creature, is complete and utterly full of shit? And you just did the Bernie hands. Now look, (laughs) the 1%, I think the 1% of the 1% of the 1%, they do not like poop like the rest of us. Not the 1% with my hands. The 1%. (laughs) I'll stop while I'm ahead. Oh, you, you were pretty convincing there. Stop. <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. Oh, my God. All right, next topic, because uh, I think uh, this has been thoroughly, this topic has been thoroughly wiped out, so. <laughs> With toilet paper? <laughs> All right, so what did we watch last night? Uh, we watched a really good movie last night. And you haven't watched this movie I before, have you? Nope, nope. I haven't watched this movie. And it was called Hot Fuzz. Hot Fuzz? Who is in Hot Fuzz? For, Tell me. It is Mr. Simon Pegg. Yeah. And if you aren't familiar with Simon Pegg, if you've watched the new Star Trek movie, he is also in that. And I believe he has also been in some of the Mission Impossible movies. Mm-hmm. Since I'm not going to do research on that, but the last few Mission Impossible films. But all right. So from what you watched last night. So the first thing I noticed of Simon Pegg was, you know, the other movies I've watched of him, he was kind of goofy and funny. But this movie, he played a very serious character. And damn, he was hot. He was fit. I was so surprised because I've never seen him in any other movie where he had this kind of a character where he was so fit. You didn't say that last night. I did. Oh. When he was jumping fences, I told you that. Oh, my God, that's incredible. And then my boy Nick Frost just 
plowed right through the fence <laughs> in a very uncharismatic manner. So who was the surprise character that we, uh, I mean, for both of us, who was the surprise character for us that we... It was it was Hound from the Game of Thrones. It was surprisingly, you know, he was there, and it, not like a very mentionable character, but... He was memorable. Uh, I don't know. One word. Yarp. Narp. Narp. He didn't say narp. That was what Simon Pegg said in his impression. Used, yeah, but he used to say NARP. That's why the we guy... Never, we never heard it on screen, though. No, I know, but probably he said NARP. That's why it was... Maybe. But yeah. his only line that we ever heard him say, so this is probably the hardest screenplay he's ever had to memorize. Yarp. He had slightly less hair than he did in Game of Thrones as and well. He was no a, beard. Yeah, he was a little um, thinner, I would say. Very tall dude, though. Yeah. Compared to Game of Thrones, or at least he had some other characters that were comparable in size compared to him. Him compared to Simon Pegg, who I think is only like 5'8 or 5'9. I think he's shorter than that. Maybe shorter than that. He's absolutely shorter than that. The he's Hound probably is huge. like 5'7, 5'6, 5'7. Hound just towered over him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yarp. But what was very interesting about the film, I think, was... Uh, how similar it is to uh, a lot of small town mentality that we see in today's world as well, right? I mean, DJ, you're from a small town. What kind of similarities did you find with that film in your own town? Well, I'll say at least one difference before we go to the similarities. One major difference is you have this whole collective hive of neighborhood people who had a vested interest in making their community the best small town or best town in all of Britain or all of, or in that state or county or wherever they were at. And they would literally kill people to preserve that title. But that, that I mean, metaphorically speaking, you know, that that is kind of similar to what we experienced in small towns in the U.S. as well. Well, metaphorically speaking, I think that metaphor transcends just a small town area. But as far as the general um, mentality of these people, like, oh, nothing bad ever happens here. Those are just accidents. No one's been murdered here in like 20 years. What are you talking about? Nothing ever happens here. That's definitely, I could see that definitely being a small town. And the comparable thing would be uh, in the older days, like say somebody's getting molested or you have that creepy uncle or uh, something fucked up's happening at school, people would usually bury it. They didn't want to deal with it, put it out. They don't want to know it. They want the, their little town, their little community to be the safe uh, environment. So instead of actually addressing the problem, they completely ignore it. Well, uh, I feel that there there are a lot of similarities as in, you know, how they want to preserve the town culture mm-hmm. and anyone external coming in and trying to, uh, I guess, expose the town to a different way of living is looked down upon or kind of they're, they're treated as this, uh, I guess, a virus and coming to attack and change the way of living of this, this town. And they would do everything possible in their capacity to... Uh, sabotage any progress that's being made by these external folks. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. 
there's a lot of uh, metaphors I think it can be drawn off this movie beyond just the comedy and the uh, surface level stuff we were talking about. You obviously have the cult references, the fact that everyone's kind of thinking in the same way, say the same things, have the same reactions to certain situations. It was very creepy, and Simon Pegg, as he's navigating um, all of this as an outsider, he was taken aback to the reactions. Like He's like, am I going insane? Am I going fucking mad mm-hmm. at one point? Um, and as a viewer of the movie, it's like, this is damn apparent, but anyone that's ever been in a strong belief system before can, and has escaped that, can watch this with that dynamic in mind, because when you're in that bubble, it doesn't seem that apparent. Mm -hmm. Everyone around you that you've known growing up thinks the same way, and you have this random one outsider calling foul, and you're going to look at them with great suspicion. It's like, Mm -hmm. what? It's nothing wrong with me. It's something wrong with them. Mm -hmm. And this is something I I remember watching this movie probably well over 10 years ago. And I, those are, those are themes I don't think I picked up on at the time, but watching it again, um, I think just kind of speaks to the timeless nature of good filmmaking and good writing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 What, one, one thing I obviously, what you said was that, really striking similarity with uh cults uh and you know like i am fascinated with cults i watch a lot of documentaries on them uh just to see what draws people into it uh how do they get so influenced by these cult leaders that they can even do horrendous horrendous deeds um just because the cult leader commanded them to do. You know, you've seen it in the past with uh, Charles Manson. We have seen it uh, with a lot of other uh, cults that people do really, really terrible things. Uh, but also, I, I feel the common messaging of that movie uh, is basically in, you have to you have to take the red pill. You have to be an outsider or have an outsider's perspective to look at things and and see what works, what doesn't work, and, you know, uh, burst that bubble, I guess. Yeah, I agree. So what was your, uh, outside of the thematic elements of the film, what, what were some of the other things you really liked about it? I definitely liked the cinematography. Uh, especially, I would say, the color palette that they used. If you, I don't know if you've noticed, the one in London, when they shot the scenes in London, it was really bright. Uh, they used a lot of um, blue, like bright blues in it. But when they moved to Sanford, when the filming was in San- or actually even the whole transition process from when uh, Simon Pegg moved from London to Sanford, the color palette slowly started changing and getting darker and darker and darker. And at the end of the movie, definitely, it was hmm. it was really dark. Well, you had that scene when Simon and Nick were standing behind the car and the, the red light from the, the brakes was illuminating them, illuminating them, and they were just completely red. Mm-hmm. Like it was just murder. It mm-hmm. was very, very dark at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It was a good color, movie. Color palettes are used very well. Yeah. I love the, I love the random infusion. It went from like a mystery film. Went, started from kind of like a cop film 
when they were introducing him in London, and then even initially when he was in the town, and then it slowly shifted to more of a mystery. He was gathering clues and uh, facts and just trying to figure out putting the pieces of the puzzle together. And then after he discovered what was really happening, instead of the typical murder mystery conclusion where the inspectors revealing all the information that they've gathered over a period of weeks or months, and they're revealing the, the whole story. Instead of that, it shows him briefly heading back to London and then decided, fuck that, I'm going to go and just pretty much go full Clint Eastwood mode mm-hmm. on the whole town. And it just, I mean, they were pretty blatant about the whole Western elements they were injecting into. He's riding a fucking horse into town with two rifles and just... Yeah, I mean, uh, one thing that the movie kind of always um, pushed forward, I guess, was this thing of uh, not giving up, right? Like, if you think about it, initially when Simon Pegg was being transferred to Sanford from uh, London where he wanted to become a sergeant, um, it was it was depressing, but he still took it up and went there and, you know, was trying to do his job as a as a police officer. And when things didn't work out and, you know, he had to be forced to move back to London, halfway through he realized that this is like the biggest, biggest possible crime he's ever going to experience, not even in London probably. So he just dashes back and, and tries to resolve the situation himself by using uh, force and violence that was used on him to drive him out of town. And he did do that. Yep. How did the movie conclude? Oh. Well, actually, let's not spoil it. Yes, but... yes. Let's it's not a, do that. It's a great movie. What would you rate it out of 10 if you had to rate it? I would I would put it at 8. 8? Yeah. 7.98. That's fair. I think I'll be a little more generous. I'll go eight and a half. Uh, just from a writing standpoint. And well, acting. the only only thing I would say uh, why I gave it an eight is because I felt a couple of times it was a little <laughs> over the top and a little unbelievable, which is obviously like this movie is not supposed to be set in realistic, um, I guess, timeline, but... Uh, some of it was a little unbelievable um and some of the acting kind of was not 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 the greatest so whose acting wasn't the greatest just asking um just questioning well i i didn't obviously like uh, i felt the lady who was the actress uh in the shakespeare's play um romeo and juliet and the guy they weren't really convincing. I think she could have been more obnoxious with her laughter and, and her acting. Like I didn't like they killed her for poor being acting. obnoxious and obnoxious and having poor acting, but he she could have done way worse, I think. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Uh, I think we're going to take a quick break and we will be back in just a moment. And we're back. Welcome back. To Simber Dialogues. With your host, Sukanya. And your other host, Daryl, or Darrell. Darrell, a.k.a. The Cream Chi. A.k.a. Glow Stick. 
God damn, I told you not to tell anyone about that. A.K.A. DJ White. <sighs> A.K.A. Poster Child of White Satan. Power. Don't say White Power. I'd rather be the poster child of Satan. <laughs> God. We're going to get the show flagged. <laughs> doing to me. All right. So what was the next topic on the list? I wanted to talk a little bit more about um, the whole pandemic and how it is affecting our freelance artists. Yes. Well, we always hear in the news about the gig economy. Yeah. And who are some of the biggest partakers in the gig economy? Well, it's mostly performing artists. It's musicians, dancers, actors, um, writers, uh, journalists, uh, filmmakers, production assistants, Entertainment, the whole entertainment sector is actually gig economy. And now that, you know, most of the biggest shows are canceled for now, uh, most films that are being filmed have been stalled. Uh, Broadway shows have been canceled. Uh, and obviously the whole contemporary dance world scene is it's, it's sad because, you know, anyways, we don't have a lot of money in that field. And when these shows are canceled, these residencies are canceled. We do not have enough revenue coming in. And these people who are mostly doing it freelance-wise uh, are left with nothing for months now. Hmm. You sandwich on top of that, the high cost of living of New York City and San Francisco and other artistically rich cities. Uh, sounds like a recipe for disaster. Yeah, and... Actually, most of these freelancers, they, are, uh, they normally do part-time jobs. Like, they are either, um, you know, waitressing uh, or they are serving as bartenders or they are, they are doing event gigs where, you know, they are servers uh, at different events. So now with the pandemic, since all these restaurants are closed, the bars are closed, um, we are not even allowed to have gatherings anymore be it family or public or private so these people are out of jobs completely they have nothing and most of these people have hardly any savings as well so you know i, I feel their plight these people are i mean correct me if i'm wrong but these are some of the most personified examples of uh, the pull yourself up by the bootstraps types They're mm -hmm. the ones that are doing just about any odd job they can find very creative and finding means of work from house cleaning to pet sitting to bartending to restaurant serving to pretty much anything under the sun just to pay their bills to mm -hmm. do the thing that they love mm -hmm. yeah um, and funny fact is that most of these people don't even have $400 in their savings not even $400 in their savings. They live paycheck to paycheck. Uh, they completely depend on getting gigs to pay rent, to mm -hmm. get food, to pay for a commute. So it, it's a very dire plight for them, for sure. Seems like uh, the way our current system is set up, it's just not, well, and I should preface this, um, the arts has never been... Uh, a field in which poor people make it. They don't make it through the ranks by doing the arts or doing 
performing the arts. They've always been funded by wealthy donors and wealthy people throughout the ages. It's, mm -hmm. it's not something that was ever uh, fruitful in a typical society. I mean, if you're thinking going all the way back to like a hunter-gatherer society, arts aren't going to put food on your table, on the table. It's, it wasn't going to happen. No, but arts and was very important for maintaining um, a communal bond. Yes. Uh, maintaining the mental health of the community, maintaining, uh, I guess, sanity in a community. Yes. Because you cannot live your life by just putting food yeah. on your table. I mean, that's that's a way of living, but it's not fulfilling. That's the, that's the seasoning to the chicken. Yep. You can have plain chicken, but nobody likes plain chicken. Yep. It'll keep your belly full. Um, point I was getting at, it's not that art, the arts, the, the fields in the arts don't have value to society, but the way our economic structure is set up and the way societies have been traditionally set up due to uh, just survival needs, I, I think there needs to be some evolution on this front to make sure that we are I'm trying to think of a word to better suit or to better take care of our artists, to not continually treat them as just bums or uh, people that should just be kicked down on the street. Oh, they, they made their bad, poor life choices, so therefore they deserve to be poor. All the while, people enjoy music every day. They enjoy film. They enjoy uh, all the other artistic mediums that are out there. So, and yet the artists themselves, it's, it's, a, it's a trope at this point, the, the poor, struggling artist. But here's the thing, though. It's some of them who make it, they are earning in millions. And there's this huge disparity between the super rich commercial artists and artists who are actually making an impact in the society by doing their work. Because these artists at the lower level are not being paid enough, but these commercial artists being funded by huge production companies funded by huge corporate media uh, are making millions and millions of dollars but i feel billions 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 of dollars billions, billions. Of dollars. millions but, of billions but that's where i feel that this disparity should be i guess uh you know it, it should be uh, shortened it can't it, we can't have this huge of a disparity so maybe we have to rethink as to what we pay our movie stars, what we pay our uh, pop stars, and how we can channel these, um, I guess, funds or revenue or whatever you want to call it towards people at the lower level, the grassroots level, making more of an impact in the arts community. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely different levels of change that can happen. Uh, the industrial changes as far as like industry to industry to industry is going to vary. Like in the movies, I'm sure one major change they could do is just making sure that people aren't going and doing unpaid work. Like that, that should be a standard. If you're doing any work for within the movie industry, you should be making something. You, sh you can't be doing this. Oh, you'll get, we'll give you food for 12 hours of work today. You know, without like actual money to pay the bills to pay the rent. So here's a very interesting suggestion I have uh, to make sure that people artists uh, especially like people who work in entertainment industry gets paid year-round is you know how we have loyalty right uh, people get loyalty money royalties yeah oh, right? yes Not royalty loyalty. I'm sorry 
There's no loyalty in Hollywood. No, no loyalty. Royalty, sorry. So, you know, they get paid royalty. Mostly movie stars get paid royalty. They can they can say, I need, you know, 1% of whatever sales So it depends on the contract, though. Whatever not... contract there is. But I feel it should actually pan out for the whole cast and crew and not just the the movie stars. But everyone should get some percent of whatever the revenue is and keep getting that so that that way they have some source of income coming in, mm. you know, year round. And it's whatever it is, even if it's like $200, $300, but if they're working in three or four movie sets, five, you know, whatever they work in, uh, they're getting at least some money out of it. It's like you're treating the participants in a project almost as like stock investors. Absolutely. Any money that comes in from the project that turns out profit mm-hmm. those should be divvied out like dividends yep. to the mm-hmm. along with their along in. with their regular pay which they should be getting anyways for the mm-hmm. amount of time they work on sets it's definitely a tough cookie to crack i think the other level that um or the other area of change that needs to really happen i think is just at the individual level and in how we perceive and treat artists and our patronage like do we buy our music or do we get it for free do we when we go see a concert live do we give those musicians any money or do we just expect that this is free entertainment in the bar um artists with paintings do we yell at them when we think that they're charging too much for the project without thinking about how much time did they put in said project mm-hmm. uh, so i think at a very much at an individual level we need to encourage each other to rethink how how we perceive arts in our society and do we want them to be a significant part of our community and do we want to show that we appreciate what they offer to our community or are we going to be continually just kind of take it for granted because people love what they do so much that they are willing to take that financial hit and suffer and struggle and um, yeah I, I mean I don't know what the solution is like an outright solution, but... Well, you know, I think changing the mentality of millions of billions of people, it's a lot uh, more difficult than actually putting in some regulations on production houses or, uh, you know, venues uh, that that host all these shows. I feel there should be strict contracts, there should be strict laws as to how these um, events are conducted and how people are paid. Uh, I mean, this is an area I feel it's, it's slowly developing. We're having a lot more consultants, arts consultants coming in and negotiating for these artists. Um, but also, you know, not everyone can be on the roster of these consultant agencies. So, you know, I think making it more accessible to artists all over and more affordable for everyone. Um, yes, indi- I think at the individual level, everyone should be supporting the arts in some way or the other. You know, uh, I, I mean, guess, just guess, like if a billion people, you know, contribute a dollar every day, even if it's not a dollar, say a dollar every week, what that could, how much that could impact on the whole arts community. That would be $52 billion. Exactly. And that's a huge, that's a huge amount of capital that can mm-hmm. go into the whole arts industry. Jesus. Yeah. Especially the rural areas. The, mm-hmm. 
when we think of the big cities and yeah they're they're always going to have money there's always going to be funding mm -hmm. for that mm -hmm. but often where you see a, a huge dearth of artistic funding are in the rural communities where there might be a couple very artistic people that are pioneering programs on mm -hmm. very little resources you know the other thing i was thinking and uh it might not be well uh accepted by a lot of people i guess but think about this we have taxes for healthcare. we have tax we have school taxes that we pay uh we have social security taxes that we pay uh medicare taxes that we pay what if what if that's just just an idea if we have a very minimal minimal arts and entertainment tax that we pay you know it can be as again bi-weekly payroll right it can be as low as one dollar it can be as low as you know two dollars whatever mm -hmm. it is you know if everyone pays for it that was supposed to be the nea yeah that got cut and that budget was already low enough as exactly it is. It was very exactly little. and i feel like again here individually yes sure we can make changes but here where big government agencies come into play as well you know they should be the one taking the initiative in saying like okay arts and culture is very important uh in functioning of a society so we should be allowing agencies like nea to exist and keep on functioning so that they can produce more artists they can produce more art I think this would be a better way to sell it. In the days of the monarchs and the kings and queens, they were the patrons of the arts. So instead of having the kings and queens being the main patrons of the arts, well, we swap in government. And I'm privy to this paranoia of you don't want, necessarily always want government funding all the arts because well, art can also be easily used as propaganda. And mm -hmm. We all know where that can head. Um, so we need to make sure if they are funding the arts that there is still a, a heavy or a good level of distance between the money and any current administration's agenda. Mm. Like, like the artists should be able to get the money, no strings attached. But if, if it is taxpayers' project, money, if it is taxpayers' money, the government should not be able to push in their agenda into it. Oh, we know how all that how all that works. Well, it's not yes in, in a in a very utopian world. People don't even world, know where their tax money goes half the, most of the time, anyways. It's, yeah, in a very utopian world, that should be that should be the goal. But uh, now, I I am interested if you had like a literal separate tax, so it's not just like take any of the money that's going into artistic funding out of the general federal income tax, and actually had a separate label saying like arts administration tax and people knew exactly how much was going into that maybe that would create some accountability mm -hmm. as to all right well we know this much money is going into this fund we see it we know mm -hmm. how it's being distributed out to the states mm -hmm. um, and then maybe the states from there can grant it out to artists local artists local communities that are doing things and, and you know what another thing is that since you know we are a very liberal society we consider ourselves to be a liberal society i mean you, it, it doesn't need to be a mandatory uh, uh, taxation we can we can have people opt in for it or opt out for it you know if you want to pay yeah. for it i mean i know a lot of people at least i know would not mind giving a dollar out of their paycheck you know to to something that would actually help the arts it's just a random idea or a thought i had speaking in the opt-in imagine say whatever your income tax rate is say like 
I don't know how this would work with overall numbers, but say like five percent or five or ten percent of that was optional in the sense that you still had to pay it. But all right, here are some programs. Mm -hmm. These are some different areas in which this tax money could go. Mm -hmm. And then from there, you could kind of opt in. All right, I want to put two percent of my taxes in arts, maybe five percent into uh, something for like rural programs, community programs. Like have different mm -hmm. things set up that mm -hmm. are almost like uh, cherry or ch yep. uh, cherry cherry charity oriented, yeah. and uh, maybe that would encourage people to be a little more involved in what their government and their tax money is actually going towards. Yeah, yeah, that's a good uh, idea. I mean, we all all have to file our taxes anyways. And you could just have preferences, or maybe when you're doing your uh, is it the I nine. Yeah. When you're at work. Yep. And then you can figure out how much you want to deduct. Well, mm -hmm. maybe you could have a couple categories. Hey, mm -hmm. I want to put this percentage of my tax money into this. And I yeah. want to put this percentage into this. And Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, and that money can be also for artists to get it after retirement, to send, you know, spend most of their lives uh, in the arts field. You know, they do not have any 401ks. They do not have Roth IRAs or anything. So, you know, that's something that can help them. Uh, after they retire, you know, and you know it, most artists who are especially movement artists, dancers, uh, they have the worst health when they are aging. You know, they have so many injuries, they have health problems. That would be very helpful for them if they have access to a retirement fund. Fair enough, yeah. Now, what are your thoughts on, and, and I love this line of argument or arguing for, uh, like Medicare for All and uh, UBI, as far as like from the UBI, UBI standpoint, that would just kind of give people much more financial flexibility to do whatever the hell it is that they want to do. Mm -hmm. for, and similar argument even for Medicare for All, now they're not going to be stuck doing a job mm -hmm. just for the health care benefits that would kind of follow them around. How do you think that would impact like an artist like New York City or elsewhere? Immensely. I mean, imagine if you know, you have UBI, you're getting whatever it is, like $1,000 a month, uh, a paycheck. Uh, that would cover for most of people's rent, uh, food. You know, if the basic necessities are taken care of, whatever extra they earn, whatever gigs they're doing, uh, you know, server jobs they're doing, bartending they're doing, that extra money can go into savings or it can also go, in, go back into the economy where they're actually investing in... Uh, you know, creating a new show or developing uh, a, a new platform or, you know, um, curating a new production, whatever it is, like they are going to give it back and uh, there would be more shows being created, people coming, buying tickets. So it's actually a win-win situation for not just the artists, but also the economy. So I, I think it's, it's, it's a great idea to at least, you know, implement UBI for artists. Now, just to make this a full circle, imagine if we had those programs implemented already during this pandemic. Like, I don't think there would be as much of a threat of economic collapse going into the remainder of 2020. This has already been a fuck of a year, but uh, like all these people that are worried about even being able to pay rent, to buy food, to pay for their basic utilities, what have you. Like there wouldn't be this massive concern. You wouldn't have these people also worried about it's like, where the hell am I going to get this test at? Mm -hmm. Most artists, I don't think, have health insurance. No, I think 
I think it's, you know, it's something for us to think about in the future going forward past Corona. I think a lot of people will start thinking about UBI. A lot of people will start thinking about uh, Medicare for all. Uh, you know, it will be a different society for sure, not just U.S. based, but globally, I feel, because it has been impacting every country in this world so it's going to change for sure um i think we could have handled this whole pandemic better if we had these ideas these policies in place already but it's a learning lesson and i'm hoping people would have a more open mind towards ubi and medicare for all going forward and maybe people wouldn't buy up all the fucking toilet paper that too and uh and um, think about other ways to clean their buttholes. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out. Um, I mean, we're going to have our fingers on the pulse as far as the artistic community in New York City and how they rebound from this. I, I think it's going to be a very slow recovery process. Mm -hmm. um, these venues don't just rebook things magically. It's going to take time to get these artists back in it's going to take time to get everything organized coordinated um as you're probably well aware these projects are 12 months plus out and planning it's not they can't just whip this up in a week or two it's usually it's, it's a lot of coordination so it's going, to, it's going to take a while for these artists to even get back to work it's um, not just the artists i mean think about people who bought tickets right mm -hmm. uh if we are doing uh, not we're not doing well financially uh, the whole economy is suffering financially. People would not have the money to uh, go back. Go back. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I think looking forward, it's going to take us a couple of years to rebound from uh, all this mess uh, and everything will be impacted. You know, um, you can see just being closed, being on a lockdown or shut down for what two weeks can do to a society. Mm -hmm. I mean, imagine if this continues over... They're couple months for a couple yeah yeah so that's it's definitely gonna uh the ripple effect is gonna be huge it's like uh when you're driving a car uphill and it takes a lot of gasoline to get you up to a normal running speed up to like 50 55 60 miles per hour it takes a lot to get up to there but once you're there the car can still maintain its momentum as long as you have your foot on the gas or maybe you could even think a train going kind of uphill. Same thing. It, it takes a lot of energy and a lot of force and a lot of momentum to keep going in that direction. But if you stop, if you stop right there, there's going to be a lot of backsliding. There's going to be a lot of uh, catching up afterwards. Mm -hmm. It's like trying to get a train to start back up and move forward going uphill. That, that's our society right now. That's our economy. That's the world economy. Once it comes to a, st a st uh, complete standstill, it's good. Everything kind of has to happen in steps again. And eventually it'll get back to full speed, but it's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen over a month or six months. It's going to take some time. And uh, it's like everything's just a chain reaction off one another. Yep. Like we're seeing it happening right now in the downward effect. Like maybe the virus is going to peter out, but the economy and the, the jobless numbers and all that's going to continually rise and rise and rise. And that's going to be the new epidemic, trying to curb that as much as possible. There's going to be a lot of stimulus plans coming out of government. and I think by that point, it's already too late. You know, businesses are going to do what's best for them. and 
I mean, they're probably going to hold out as long as they can, but once people are laid off and fired, those people are going to move around. Mm -hmm. There's no, no guarantee they're going to get called back to the same company. Maybe some people are just going to leave the cities outright. Mm -hmm. It's going to be tough. Well, it'll be a very interesting rebound time. We'll see. Well, I have been, I have been hopeful seeing a number of landlords that have been telling their tenants just to hold on to the rent money and use that for their bills and use that for food and like businesses that have to pay rent, they're being told to not pay the rent money and use that to pay employees. Been seeing some stories like that pop up. But they, up, it's still like back pay, though. You still have to pay yes. the landlord. Oh, you still will eventually, absolutely. But the fact that that's even happening, that's some of those goodwill stories. Yeah. And maybe some of the landlords have come up with a deal. And so if they're not having to pay their mortgage, uh, most landlords don't even have the, the property paid off. It's kind of on lease for them as well. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting. Mm -hmm. For sure. And uh, anything else we want to talk about for today? Um, we'll, we'll, again, you know, keep keep looking at the, the stats for the whole pandemic situation. And we're coming back next week. Sometime next week. Sometime next week with uh, more topics to discuss um you know we we really talked about a lot today we covered a lot <laughs> ranging from our movie that we watched last night to uh the whole coronavirus situation toilet paper and butthole and the freelance gig economy so we will we will be discussing a couple more interesting topics next week yes uh just last bit before we go since everyone's cooped up in their house, if they're looking for a show to watch, if they have not watched this but have watched Breaking Bad, I highly recommend Better Call Saul. It is de facto one of the best TV shows on TV, bar none. No questions asked, just watch the damn thing. The cinematography's 10 out of 10. The acting's pretty damn close to 10 out of 10. The story, the writing's close to 10 out of 10. There's hard, it's hard, I don't even think there's been a single bad episode and they're in season five. So you need a good show to binge during this pandemic. Better call Saul. Better call Saul. Better call Saul. Better call Saul. Yarp. Well, I guess with that, uh, that concludes the first episode of the Simber Dialogues. And uh, see you next week. Stay safe, y'all. Stay safe. See you next week. I'm cashing out, I'm cashing out, I'm cashing out.